Everybody was probably looking around all crazy this morning and thought Brother Paul thought it was Christmas time. We're singing Joy to the World. Uh, but that song is actually was not written originally for Christmas. Uh, that was a very popular song in the, for the early church as they worshiped the Lord. And it, it has many great truths in it, uh, many of which are found in this psalm that we're going to dig into today. Get organized here for just a second and I will get started. All right. Well, good morning. It is an honor and a privilege to stand before you today and to herald the gospel of our glorious King Jesus. Um, as we come to a close this morning in our summer in the Psalms, uh, I want to say what a blessing that it has been to me, and I hope it has been to you as well. Um, as we started off, we, we learned in Psalm 1 that uh, we received a lesson in happiness, and we discovered that there are but two classes of people in this world, those who have been made righteous through the new birth and abiding in Christ, and the wicked who are still at present dead in their trespasses and sin. We saw that there are two paths, and we all must decide which path we will navigate. One path leads to life and peace, and the other leads to damnation and destruction. In Psalm 37, we learned the path back to peace. When we detour off of it, and being discouraged and distracted by the, the apparent success of the wicked world systems that are around us. In Psalm 22, we learned of the suffering Messiah and detailed predictions of his suffering and his triumph some 1,000 years before it occurred. In Psalm 6, we, we learned that suffering in the life of a Christian is not an elective class, but rather a required course. And that God is sovereign even in our suffering and is working all things for the good of those who love him and for his glory. In Psalm 100, Brother Jay walked us through uh, thanksgiving and acceptable worship to God, not based on our feelings or our emotions, but, but based on who God is and all that he has done. In Psalm 30, we, we saw a cry from the depths, a call for forgiveness, a caution to wait culminating in a command to hope in the Lord. And then last week, Brother Justin Fordham preached a great sermon as he unpacked the glory of God in creation and truth and in holiness from Psalm 19. Yes, over the last seven or eight weeks from this pulpit, God's word has been faithfully exposited and we ought to have gain some good theology, some good doxology, and some good practical application for our lives. Praise God for His Word. Amen. Praise God for There is not another book like this. Right. We can read it over and over and over again and never grow tired of it. I challenge you to find another book in your library that is like that. And, and, the, and 
there's something else about it. We can read a verse or a, or a, a chapter a, a hundred times, and the next time that we read it, we find something new. And it's not because it changes, but it's because like mining for gold, the deeper you dig, the more God reveals. And this word is active and living. And the more you dig, Amen. the more gold God pours out upon you. It has been well said that even the dust of this book is gold. And speaking of gold, I have a gold standard text this morning. It's one of my favorites in all the Psalter. And I am in good company because it is quoted ten times in the New Testament. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, ranking second only to Psalm 110 with Psalm 110.1 being the most quoted verse from all of the Old Testament in the New Testament. These scriptures meant something to the, to the writers and to the early church. This psalm here is not by happenstance that it has been included into the New Testament more than, than any other verses. It is because it is an important one and the, and the writers being unctioned by the Holy Spirit wanted to press these great truths upon us. Psalm 110.1, which is that most quoted verse, it may be my favorite verse of all the scriptures, where David, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 1 and 2, most theologians believe, are one unit. There's an inclusio or an inclusion, which is a literary device that is in this psalm. It makes sense that they were at one time knit together as one unit, but now have been split apart. An inclusio is when, when an author takes a phrase, a very important meaning in the passage, and puts it at the front of the passage, and then he puts it at the end of the passage. We see a, a, another inclusio in Romans. In Romans 1, we hear about the obedience of faith to the nations. And then Romans 16, we see that same statement being made. It's because that is the main idea, or the thesis statement, if you will, of Romans, that the, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. And it brings about the obedience of faith to the nations. We see it here in Psalm 1 and 2, where Psalm 1, it says, blessed are those who do not. And then at the end of Psalm 2, it says, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Amen. But these two psalms stand as a, a gatekeeper to the Psalter. Psalm 1 resembles more like something you would see in the book of Proverbs. It has a lot of instruction in Psalm 1. Psalm 2 looks like something that you would probably see in like Isaiah or um, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Because it is, a pro it is a prophetic and messianic psalm. It is a psalm of David. And it was written some 3,000 years ago. But in it, the children of God will find relevance, instruction, comfort, and hope for today. However, the unbeliever, to the unbeliever, this is the stuff nightmares are made of. 
and being rightly understood should bring anxiety, consternation, to the because it, it reveals in this psalm the absolute sovereignty of God and sets forth his plan to irrevocably eradicate and destroy all of those found outside of Christ. This psalm is perfectly divided into four stanzas containing three verses each, and we will explore Psalm 2 today under four headings. And hopefully in those four headings we will see the depravity of man, the holiness of God and His sovereignty, the certain success and fulfillment of God's decrees. And in the last header, we will look at the beautiful grace and mercy that is found in the gospel. Amen. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's ask God to bless his holy and infallible word. Father and sovereign God, Lord, I come before you this day, Lord. Lord, and thank you, Lord, for this living and active word that you have provided us, this revelation of yourself, this word that you have breathed out for our instruction in righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would press upon the hearts of each person here today the, the realities of these great truths. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way. Lord, that you would decrease, that I would increase, Lord, that when people leave here, they would forget me and remember your word and have a greater knowledge of who you are, what you've done and what you will do. Lord, bless this word this day, Lord, for without your blessings, it will be a futile attempt of a broken man. Lord, bless this word. Bless your people. We'll give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 2, you've got your worship sheets with you. You see the first header is the impotent insurrection. The title of today's sermon is Christ, 
the sovereign king. Verse 1 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? We see this question that is presented to here, here to us. And I want you to notice in this question the all-encompassing nature of the question. The nations and the peoples are in the plural. There's a plurality of nations. This means all the nations and all the peoples are devising a vain thing. And they are enraged. They are in an uproar. The answer to that question, if you have your copy of God's Word with you, turn to Genesis chapter 3. And we will find the answer to the question, why do the nations rage? <clears throat> and why are the people devising vain things? This is shortly after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin by directly disobeying the commands of God. In verse 12 we see, <clears throat> excuse me, and he said, to me, he said to them, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So we see this blame game already beginning. It is the woman you gave me. It was her fault. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And right here is where we see why the nations rage and why the peoples devise a vain thing. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more, of, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And in verse 15, I will put enmity between the woman and the and between your seed and between her seed. And he shall bruise your head. And she, and, and he will bruise your, and you will bruise his heel. Right here in this delegation of the curse, as God hands down this curse, we see the cause of the depravity of man. Adam and Eve as our federal heads, our first parents, when they plummeted into sin, all of his posterity plummeted into sin with him. That's the reason we are born fallen sinners, separated from God, dead in our trespasses and sin. Notice here in Genesis 3, he says, I will put enmity between your, her seed and your seed. Her seed was Christ. He is the only seed of the woman. Guess where that leaves us? We're the seed of Satan. That's the way we are born into this world. We are born into this world totally depraved. And when I say totally depraved, I don't mean everybody's as evil as they could be. But for the grace of God, you're not. But for the grace of God, everybody doesn't make Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer look like a choir boy. Right. 
It is the grace of God that restrains the evil of your heart. So this, this in, in verse 1 and 2, in verse 1 here, the nations, this all-encompassing statement is to all that are void of the new birth. And there is no neutrality in them, in their rage, in their plotting. They are in open hostility to God. People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Their whole head is sick. Their whole heart is faint. From the sole of the feet even to their head, there is nothing sound in it. What a vivid picture of the total depravity of man we see here in verse 1. Every intent of the thoughts of the heart outside of Christ are only evil continually. And the annals of history uh, recapitulate the same story. The pages of history are replete with the same theme of rebellious men striving against a, a righteous and holy and sovereign God. I'm going to shock somebody right now when I say this because this is not what culture tells you this is not what people would have you to believe but evil has not evolved or mutated it is not more evil today than there was a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago or three thousand years ago there is not more evil today than there was then you're just more informed of the evil that is going on around you and if you do not believe that, then it would do you yourself a, a favor. It would behoove you to read through the Old Testament. Look closely at Pharaoh as he had all the male children slaughtered. Read the book of Judges. Come to the New Testament and read of Herod, when upon the birth of Christ had all the children under the age of two slain. All the way up to Nero. Do y'all know who Nero was? He was a Caesar. And you know what he would do? He would fillet Christians. He would cut the skin from their living bodies. He would hang them on a post and pitch them with this tar. And he would set them afire and use them for light for his garden parties. You can't get more wicked than that. And it goes all the way up to today. We see the, 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 the wickedness of abortion and, and all these other things that are going on around us. But this is, evil has not mutated or evolved. You're just more informed of how depraved the other people, these other image bearers of God on this face of this earth are. But the nations rage and the people devise a vain thing. This word vain here indicates that there will be no positive results. They are futile, useless, unproductive, ineffective, ineffectual, and impotent. In verse 2 and 3, 
It says, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Yeah, the kings and the rulers of this earth, they find common ground. Now there might be a great chasm that separates them in politics and policy and ethnicity and ethics, laws and legislations. They are greatly divided on those. But they come together in one accord and they, they band together, both black and white, both Republican and Democrat, both rich and poor, both sodomites and straits, both kings and common men. They band together on this. And they take counsel together and they support one another for the sole purpose to overthrow and to displace and to subvert Jehovah God and His anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. They can come together on that. What a foolish thing it is for a finite creature to revolt against an infinite Creator who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and always present. Make no mistake about it, God will not be deceived or ambushed. For the wisdom of man is the foolishness of God. Wicked kings and wicked rulers and wicked people and wicked governments, they can band together all they want. But in Matthew 28, just before Jesus ascends, He says, I have been given all authority in heaven. And we're okay with that. We're okay with, with Jesus having all the authority in heaven. But that is not where he stopped at. He said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And then he proceeds to tell us to go, therefore. Because of that, we are to go. That's what Brother Paul was talking about this morning. That's the reason we are to go into these streets. We can do it with confidence because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Amen. Yet they refuse to obey His commands and His precepts. The great theologian John Calvin said, when God decides to judge a nation, He, he first gives them wicked rulers. Wow. Do you see that going on around you today? Rulers, especially in a democracy, are a direct reflection of society because we vote these people in. Society and culture are the church's report card. Guess whose plate this is falling on? Guess where that finger needs to be pointed when you see these things going on? To the church. The church's report card is what's going on outside of the church. What we see going on around us, I submit to you, will not cause the judgment of God, but rather it is the judgment of God. Write this down in your worship sheet. I don't have time this morning to read all the way through this text. But exactly what I'm saying there, that what's going on around us is, is, is not going to cause the judgment of God, but is the judgment of God, is revealed in Romans 1, in verses 18 through 32. 
But it is summed up in verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their, futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You can read through that. That is Romans 1, 18 through 32, and you will see that God gives them over to do this wickedness that you see around you. It is the judgment of God. And by way of application, I just want to touch on a couple things this morning where we can improve on this. We've already mentioned the gospel, and we will get on that. But where does that gospel start? Where does that gospel presentation, that kingdom expanding, where does it start? I always let my faithfulness come after my, I mean, my faithfulness come before my carefulness. But I want to be honest with you this morning. Okay? This, this is something that I have, have grown to know. I have not always done this right. I have not always done this right. I'm not who I want to be. Amen. But praise God, I'm not who I used to be. Amen. And I don't run my home the way that I used to run my home. You know, there's one thing that evangelicals, if that word means anything anymore, Christians in America agree on more than anything. That is who we let teach our children. We'll disagree on soteriology, eschatology. We'll divide over uh, um, ecclesiology. But we all send our children to the same places to get taught. Now, we're in the process of transferring this to do it the right way. I want to give you a scripture for you to meditate on this week. And I know this is not something you can just jump into as a family. We couldn't just jump into it. And we're working in the right direction. But I believe it, it glorifies God. In Luke 6, 39 and 40, it says, A blind man cannot need a blind man, for they will both fall into the ditch. It says a student will not be better than his teacher. And after he is fully trained... A student will be just like his teacher. So who's teaching your children? As Vody Bauckham said, we can't send them to Rome and be surprised when they come back acting like Romans. Okay? We can't. We send them to Rome and we're surprised when they come back acting that way. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. Another another point of application for this, and I will move on, is how are we voting? Are you, are you viewing things through political glasses or ethnic glasses? Are you viewing things through the Bible? You should view it through the Word of God. And that doesn't mean you're always going to, you're never going to have a perfect choice. Jesus is king, but he's not running for president or governor or councilman, right? You're not going to have a perfect choice. But God help you if you put in a baby-murdering administration because that blood is on your hands. If you voted in an administration that is pro-abortion, every child that dies on their watch is on your plate. You need to repent if you did. 
And we need to start judging things like Christians with a Christian worldview. Verse 3. It says, we see now here, that to begin with, we had the, the psalmist speaking. And now in verse 3, we have these wicked rebels speaking. And we see the, the purpose of this coalition. What, is the, what, is their, what are they trying to accomplish? It says they're taking counsel together against the Lord and His anointing, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. Like the citizens in Luke 19, 14, they said, we will not have this man rule over us. They are contrary to godliness. They are contrary to God's law, for it exposes their sin and their wickedness. It reflects God's perfect righteousness and reveals that they are inferior, insufficient, and substandard outside of Christ. They want to be gods to their self. They want to worship their idols. And I submit to you, many in America do. They may worship a Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's one that fits their little sinful passions. One that can be set to the side when they want to have a little bit of fun but it is not the God of the Bible. In John 3, 19 and 20, it says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and that men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, for the fear his deeds will be exposed. They do not want their evil deeds exposed. They prefer to work under the stealth of darkness. Yes, men are slaves to sin and their, and their master's bidding they, they, they desire to do. And God's law declares that there is a standard by which all men will be judged. And just like the people in Romans 1.18, they are the people in Romans 1.18. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God's law and His Word declares that there is one source of truth and one truth giver. In John 14, 6, he says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them by your Word. Your Word is truth. Today, culture has told you the lie that truth is relative or truth is subjective. No Truth is objective and it is by the standard, one standard, the holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, and sufficient Word of God. This Word of God has everything that you need to govern your life and all the decisions in your work, in your family, in your home, in every aspect of life. It is in this book. Yes, God's law is perfect and His Word is the objective truth. It is the standard by which we should measure all things. And they are cursed because they do not delight in the law of the Lord. I want to ask everybody here today. I'm a grace preacher. Not a pseudo-grace preacher, but a grace preacher. But I delight in the law of the Lord. Do you delight in the law of the Lord? 
I hear many people say, this is not a religion of, of law, this is a religion of grace. To them, I ask them, what part of God's law oppresses you? That you cannot steal? That you cannot have your neighbor's wife? Does that oppress you? Do you? Can you stand with Paul and say that the law of God is holy and righteous and good as he does in Romans 7.12? Or in Romans 7.22 he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Yes, the law of God and principles of biblical morality are not contrary to a religion of grace, but rather are subservient to it. A low view of God's law produces one of two things. It will either produce legalism in religion or lawlessness outside of religion. A low view of God's law produces legalism in religion because man's law is then substituted for God's law. High views of God's law show us our inability and our failure and it drives us to be seekers after grace. Law and grace do not need to be reconciled. They are perfect friends in perfect harmony. Amen. They do not need Amen. reconciliation. When we have a high view of God's law, legalism and lawlessness are avoided and grace is promoted. Amen. As we come to verse 3, we're coming under the second header here. The second header is the divine response. We have heard the psalmist talk. Then we have heard the, the rebellious, wicked men talk. Now, we will hear Jehovah talk. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, speaks. And in verse 4 we see, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Notice that Jeho where Je Jehovah's posture. Notice that God's posture in heaven. He is seated. He is enthroned. He remains on the throne. He is not disquieted or distressed or in dismay. He is not up pacing back and forth thinking, what will I do now? No, He sits enthroned. There's a heresy that is running rampant today of this idea of open theism. That God is just waiting to see what you will do and then He will make a move on that. God is not playing chess, people. He is not playing chess. He is not waiting to see what you're going to do. He is sovereign over all things. Amen. Right. Nothing's happening outside of what God has ordained to happen. And Jehovah laughs here. And the psalmist is using a, a bit of anthropomorphism, which is, a, which is a fancy word for giving human characteristics to God that we might better understand the point that is being pressed upon us. And he says, the, and the psalmist says, Jehovah laughs. And he does this to impress upon us that, that God needs no help to repress or to, or to re uh, crush the rebellion of wicked men. Yes, sinners' follies are sport to a sovereign God. 
And attempts that may be formidable in our eyes are despicable and vain in the eyes of an infinitely powerful potentate. Yes, God laughs. And that is a hard word at first glance. You think, I see all this going on around me. And God's laughing? So that's a hard word considering the injuries of the saints and, and, and the cruelty of our enemies and the calamity and the derision and confusion and persecution that is just all around us today. But a close consideration should bring comfort knowing God is unmoved. He is unshaken. And He laughs. Not in a merry disposition, but in scorn. And in His scorn is vengeance. Consider Pharaoh. We talked about him just a minute ago. You know, he thought by drowning all of the Israelite males that he would eradicate the Israelite people from the face of the earth. And the whole time, God was using His daughter to rescue, to educate, and to provide for those people. Did God not laugh? He's laughing now. This should encourage you when you see this going on around you. God has not moved. He is on the throne and He is laughing. Just as He laughed at Pharaoh when he thought he would do what he was doing. Yeah, the joys of the wicked will be short, but if Dagon be put upon his place again, God's smile will smite off his head and sever it from his body, and he will have no intelligence to guide nor power to prevail. In verse 5, Jehovah speaks. The psalmist here in verse 5, as is, is Jehovah speaks, he says he will speak to them in his anger and he will terrify them in his fury. The psalmist ascribes speech to God. Once again, anthropomorphism. Not as much to instruct his enemies, but to convict them of their madness. By speaking here, he means nothing more than the manifestation of God's wrath, which they will not, feel, will not perceive until they feel it. It's like a mousetrap. The rats don't know why the cheese is free. Right? That's why they work. God's wrath is not perceived until it is felt. I want you to turn, if you will, to Psalm 5 for just a minute. As we're speaking on the, on the, on the wrath of God. I normally say this in, the, in, in sermons, and I don't have a problem saying it because it's the truth of Scripture. It might be something you've never heard before, though, because we hear a lot about God's love and His attributes of love. But listen here in Psalm 5, verse 4 through 6. For you are not a God that takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all those who do iniquity. God hates those who do iniquity. This is not what you normally hear. We've heard, oh, God, God hates, hates the sin but loves the sinner. It's not what this says. 
Which one is he going to cast into hell? The sinner or the sin? When the sinner goes, the sin will be going with it. But here it says he hates all those who do iniquity. Psalm, verse, Psalm 7, verses 11 through 16 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. This is a strong word for God's hot displeasure and hate of those workers of iniquity. In Psalm 11, 4 through 6, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. The one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares and fire and brimstone and burning wind. That will be the portion of their cup. This is the God who sits on the throne. This is the God who these rebellious traitors, guilty of cosmic treason against their Creator, are looking at. This is what they're sitting under. Back to our text in, Psalm, in verse 6. We see, but the Lord speaks again. He says, but for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God's not running for God. We're not taking a vote on this. Yahweh says, I have installed my king. <clears throat> there are different parts of this psalm that refer to David's kingship in Israel as he was the type of the one to come. A man after God's own heart. But these, these wicked and evil people did not desire for David to be on the throne. They didn't want him on the throne. And that mirrors what's going on here and goes perfectly with this psalm. Because that's what's going on with Christ's kingdom. The wicked and the rebellious traitors want to dethrone God. They want to dethrone Christ. They want to be a God unto their self. And they think that they can remove Him from the throne. And certainly those who sought to dethrone David thought it would be a, th a small thing to dethrone a shepherd boy. They made little of the prophecy and the anointing of Samuel and considered it foolish pretense. But God at length destroyed them and settled David upon his throne. And by his hand and his providence, his, his purposes were made manifest. Since God has showed himself faithful in the establishment of the type, how much more will God be faithful in the establishment of the kingdom of his beloved son and in destroying everyone and everything that rises up against it. I submit to you, he will, be, he will complete the good work that he has began. So we've heard the psalmist speak. We've heard the, the rebels speak. We've heard Yahweh speak. And now coming to verse 7 
in 7, 8, and 9, we see the sovereign king himself speak, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I will surely tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. In these three verses, we get an inside look at an inner Trinitarian conversation that took place before the foundation of the world, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we see that the Lord Jesus Christ enlightens us to the decree that His Father told Him. We need to understand one thing about God's decrees. God's decrees are perfect. And they are made according to the counsel of His own will. Ephesians 1.11 They are immutable. God does not change or change His mind. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Hebrews 13.8 his, his decrees are everlasting. He has decreed the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, those things which have not been done, saying, my purposes will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 And God's decrees are irrevocable. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But God does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can stay His hand. Daniel 4.35 We read these, but do we believe these? He said to me, You are my son. T today I have begotten you. I want to start off by explaining what that does not mean. It does not mean that God, that Jesus Christ was created. That is a lie of the cults, of Mormonism and of the Jehovah's Witness. And it is a lie from the pit of hell. The first thing they do is attack the deity of Christ. Christ was not created. He has, is, and always will be God. Co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. In John 1, we see in the beginning was the Word, and the, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and with God He was in the beginning. And then in verse 14, we see, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. This Word, begotten, points us to His uniqueness as God incarnate. It declares His sonship, His deity, His inheritance, and it points us to the resurrection of Christ. This word begotten points us to the resurrection, which is our hope. The resurrection of Christ is our only hope. In Acts 13... Verses 32 through 34, we see that, that this is pointed to the resurrection as he calls him the only begotten. In verse 32 of Acts 13, he says, And we preach to you the good news 
the promises made to our fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise in our children as He raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact, He has raised Him up from the dead. The picture of this word begotten here is one of the earth giving birth. Giving birth to the firstborn from the dead. Our elder brother, Christ Jesus the King. Yes, Christ is the only begotten Son and He is the only expected one. I want to read you something from Lorraine Botner, an old theologian. He says, In all the history of the world, Jesus emerges as the only expected person. No one was looking for such a person as Julius Caesar or Napoleon or Washington or Lincoln to appear in the time or place where they did appear. No other person had his course foretold or his work laid out for him centuries before he was born. But the coming of the Messiah had been predicted for centuries. In fact, the first promise of His coming was given to Adam and Eve soon after their fall into sin. Jesus is the only expected one. And we need to, we need to remember that as we go out and share this gospel. In verse 8, we see, he says, Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Ask of me. I was talking to Brother Paul yesterday. I said, can you imagine? Judah comes to me and he, he says, Daddy, you have children. How does that make you feel when your son comes to you and asks of you? Do you not, while you being evil, desire to give your children good things? How much more will the Heavenly Father give to those who ask Him? And even higher than that, His sinless, spotless, perfect Son ask. So I have a question. As He says He would give Him the nations as an inheritance and the ends of the earth of His possession, did, did Jesus forget to ask? No. Do we think He forgot to ask for this as His possession? You want to be encouraged by something? Listen to this. The Expositor's Greek New Testament says, The gist of prophecy in the Old Testament is the suffering and the resurrection of Christ and the preaching in the name of the risen one to all the nations of repentance unto the remission of sin. What things were predicted in the Old Testament? The appearance of Christ was predicted. The death and resurrection of Christ was predicted. The missionary work of the church was predicted. And its success. Yes, the success of the missionary work of the church. See, God is not in the business of losing. Okay? There's very few things that we can do in our life with 100% success. But sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is 100% successful. 
Every person that Christ died for will be saved. Every single person. Read John 6, 37 through 39. He says, I did not come to do my will, but I came to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all you have given me, I will lose none. I will not lose one of the people you have given me. God is not in the business of losing. And in Romans 1.16 it says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This was very convicting to me. And I suppose it will be convicting to you. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Do we act like we're not ashamed of the gospel? Are we ignorant of the gospel? Because we are not sharing the gospel. We can go to a fine restaurant. We can go to a a lavish hotel. We can see a, a breathtaking mountain view. And we cannot wait to get it on Facebook or get home and tell Uncle Joe or Aunt Sue or our friends at work about how good that steak was or about how good that vacation was. But have we tasted how good the Lord is and not shared the gospel? As Paul said, hey, from the looks of these seats right now, we haven't. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. All that the Father has given the Son will come to Him. The gospel has a 100% success rate. So where's the, where's the flaw at? Is it in us? It's in us. And as I said, we are either ashamed of the gospel and selfishly holding on to these precious promises that God has given us, not desiring to give it to our families or to our friends or to our co-workers, or either we're just ignorant of what the gospel is. The gospel is not inviting people to church. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can invite people to church and you should do so after you give them the gospel because unsaved people should not feel comfortable in the church. They're not going to feel comfortable in this church because I've heard what's preached from behind this pulpit. But when God regenerates their heart, we can bring them into the fold. The church is for the redeemed. In verse 9, he says, You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. This figurative language is expressly stated to teach us that Christ is completely furnished to, with power to subdue and reign over all those who are contrary to His authority and refuse to obey Him. And Christ needs no rod, only the breath of His mouth, to smite the ungodly, and to bring all those who the Father has given Him into joyful submission. There's another verse. I'm not going to read it. I want you to write this down. Isaiah 9, 1-7. through 7. It talks about a son being given to us. It talks about a a wonderful counselor, a mighty God. And it says the the government will rest upon his shoulders. 
And there will be no end to the increase of His kingdom from the time of David forevermore. And it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will, will cause this to happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. This is a certainty. Moving on to our final header, the gospel command. Upon the black drop, black backdrop of man's total depravity, the immutable decrees of God, and the sure and perfect promises that He has given us, we see a diamond shining in the darkness. We see a ray of hope. As he says, therefore, and anytime we see the word therefore, we need to go back and see what therefore is there for. Because man is totally depraved, because man is in active rebellion against God, because God is sovereign and seated on the phone ready to deliver His, ready to deliver His hot fury and displeasure, His unmitigated wrath upon these treasonous, rebellious people. Because of that, it says, Therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges, or O rulers of the earth. Notice he's pointing to people in positions of high authority. This does not remove me or you or anyone else. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that authority and power and wealth tend to lead us to believe that we are above the law. An abuse of power, an abuse of position. We see this going on around us. We see it all the time. We see it at our jobs. We see it everywhere. This abuse of power. Somebody thinks they are above the law. But God here says there is a law that you are subject to. And there is a righteous judge in Zion. There is a king who I have installed upon my holy mountain. And he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Do you believe that this morning, church? That there is another king in Zion. See, when there's not a God above the state, the state resolves to be God. And this is the message we need to be taking to our councilmen. We need to be taking this to our congressmen. There is a king in Zion who you will answer to for your actions. In verse 11, we see... We need to take that all the way up the political chain of command. That's right. Other churches are doing this in different states, and they are several states are like this close to having abortion abolished. Amen. God is blessing their efforts of taking the king, the message of the gospel of the kingdom to the rulers and to the governors and to the senators. He's blessing that. He's blessing their work. And by His grace, the slaughter of millions of innocent children will be abolished in this country. In verse 11, we see, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice in tre with trembling. To worship the Lord is to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. Quit worshiping yourself. Quit worshiping your riches. Quit worshiping your possessions. Quit worshiping your positions is the message to these people. And turn and worship 
the one you were created to worship. Repent and turn from your idols and your corruption and worship the Lord with reverence and be reconciled unto your Creator and rejoice with trembling knowing that what God requires, God provides. Rejoice knowing that what you receive when you receive the grace of God and even these unbelievers right now that woke up this morning, they're receiving a common grace of God because they got something they didn't deserve. Rejoice in that. And rejoice in the fact that by His grace He has provided a mediator to reconcile sinful man to righteous God. In verse 12, it says, Do homage to the Son in the NASB. I like the old King James and the new King James as well, and I believe the ESV says the same thing. It says, Kiss the Son. And the idea here historically is when a king would conquer another kingdom, his military would bring the king in of the, the conquered kingdom, and he would get down on his knees as the other king sit enthroned high and lifted up, and he would kiss his feet in an act of submission. This is what we are called the councilmen and the congressmen to do, to kiss the feet of King Jesus. Amen. We're to call them to submit to the lordship of Christ. And here in the last verse of Psalm 2, we see, or the last line of the last verse of Psalm 2, we see how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. This is the other side of Psalm 1-1. This is the inclusion I was telling you about. We see... In Psalm 1-1, that it is a blessing to be separated from the world. And then in Psalm 2-12, we see that it is a blessing to be found in Christ. Notice the plurality of blessed. All the blessings of this life and the life to come are, are found only in Christ Jesus. Oh, the multiplicity of the blessednesses that are in Christ Jesus. And they are all there. And they are all yes and amen. amen. You're either blessed in Him or you're cursed outside of Him. There is no gray area in that. And in conclusion, there is a sovereign king in Zion who cannot be removed, seated at the right hand of God the Father until all His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. Yes, Christ, the sovereign King who has all authority of heaven and earth, will judge in righteousness the living and the dead. Amen. And there are but two types of people in this world and there are but two types of people in this building. They are the blessed and the cursed. There are those that are in Christ and those that are in His crosshairs. And there is one subcategory, and my heart bleeds for this category. There are those who think they are in Christ, 
but they have never been born again. It might be some in this building today that fall into that subcategory. Undoubtedly there is. Have you kissed the king? Can you stand with Paul and say, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Have you trusted Him as Savior and as Lord? For many will have Him as Savior, but have no desire for His Lordship. And if He be not Savior of your life, uh, Lord of your life, neither is He your Savior. What are you try- I want to ask you a question this morning. In all sincerity, you owe it to be honest with yourself. You don't have to answer this out loud. What are you trusting in for your assurance? Your morality? Your good works? Your position? Your apparent prosperity? Your church attendance? A decision you made as a child? Is that what you're putting your trust in? A prayer you prayed? A preacher's signature in the back of your Bible with a little date beside it? Is that what you're trusting in? I know you're saying, preacher, you must want me to doubt my salvation. No. With stakes this high, I want you to be sure. The stakes are this high. I want you to be sure. The Bible tells us to test ourselves, to see that we are in the faith, to make our calling and election sure. It's okay for a believer to doubt their salvation. But the true believer will never doubt this, that Christ, the sovereign King, is their only hope. I hope my brothers and sisters in Christ in here today will find assurance through the Spirit of their salvation. For Romans tells us that the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Preachers don't tell people that they're saved. They teach people how to get saved. I will not tell you we're saved. I will tell you how to be saved. And I hope the Spirit testifies with your spirit today. I hope that you found hope and comfort for today in all the calamity and the confusion that is going on around us in this culture. I hope the Spirit convicted you. I hope I did not injure you. I hope the Word of God cut you. Because none of us are perfect, including myself. And we need instruction in righteousness. And we need to look through the Word of God to everything that we do. But undoubtedly, there's those here today who are either A, deceived, or B, in open rebellion against Christ. I want to call you to repent of your sins and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to 
Not harden your heart. But to seek the Lord while He may be found. For His arm is not so short that it cannot reach. His ear is not so dull that He cannot hear. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Behold the Lamb, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Who was born of a virgin. Who lives sinlessly, completely fulfilling the law that you and I destroy every day. And it was offered up on a Roman, a Roman cross and hung there and suffered for the sins of His people. And in Isaiah it says it, please Yahweh to crush Him as He crushed this sin in His body. He made Him, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Amen. The Bible says that Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I believe that. Amen. I want to call you to repent of your sin, to turn to Christ. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, then you shall be saved. But in Luke it says, Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Seek the Lord today. For there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Seek Him while He may be found. Flee to Christ. Thank you, brother. Amen. Amen. What a word. Thank you, brother. Bless you. Thank you. Amen. What a word for the Lord this morning. And as Courtney comes, we're going to sing our response song in a minute. But before we do, and as they come... Um, heed that today. I was that deceived person. I I, I've lived that. Professional church kid. Said prayers and got wet. But oh, when God revealed Christ to me, what He revealed was my sin to me, myself to me. And opened my eyes to the truth of my condition. And maybe that's you today. Oh, beloved. There's an old-fashioned altar right here. You come and, 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 and anoint that with the tears of repentance and faith. And you do that right now. You do that as we stand and sing. Don't sing. Come and repent and, and put your faith in Jesus. Would you stand as Courtney leads us in this beautiful song? It says, I will wait for you. Oh, that we would wait for God and know that He is calling us to put our faith in His Son.